Good evening, and uh, wow, a full house. Uh, I'm Hamish McRae, and this is the nicest and easiest job I shall have uh, in the whole year, uh, introducing a fellow uh, economic scribe. Um, Tim is uh, now on the editorial team of the Financial Times, but is a, a real economist in the sense that he, um, he uh, uh, serves his time at Oxford, at the World Bank, at Shell, and so on, before becoming a bestseller writer with The Undercover Economist. Um, what we're going to do is he's going to talk for some 40 minutes, then there'll be some Q&A, uh, and then uh, there is the wholly important book signing. Um, but the one thing I want to say really is that Tim is doing for microeconomics what the rest of us try much less adequately to do for macro. Uh, we spend all our time, most of us, writing about um, whether there's going to be a housing slump or whatever. Tim has done, has brought, brought to everybody's, everybody's reach the really fascinating things which econo economists can tell you if you if you ask them nicely, which is things like why do people rationally take drugs? Um, and, Tim, you're going to reveal that to us now, I hope. So do please welcome Tim Harvard. Great. Let me just switch this on. Does that work? Wonderful. Thank you so much, Hamish. Uh, this place is absolutely packed. I'm astonished um, that, that so many people are interested in hearing about economics. I'll try and do my best. Um, let me begin by uh, introducing you to uh, one of um, my favorite characters in economics and my favorite characters in the book. His, his name is Gary Becker. Gary Becker is the closest thing that the economics profession has to Mr. Spock from Star Trek. And... Let's face it, the economics profession has quite a lot of people who are fairly close to Mr. Spock from Star Trek. When, when Gary Becker was... He's a, he's a professor uh, at the University of Chicago. He's in his mid-70s. Uh, he's, uh, he's quite tall. He's slim. comes from uh, Brooklyn. I can't do the Brooklyn accent, so I won't try. Um, thin, wispy hair. He's a grandfather. And he's a Nobel laureate in economics. And there's a famous story about Becker that he told, actually, while he was um, accepting his Nobel Prize, which was that uh, in the 60s, when he was teaching at Columbia University in New York, he was running late to examine a student uh, on the day that he was supposed to be uh, awarded his PhD. Uh, and, of course, this is the, the most important day in a student's life. You're going to get your PhD or not, depending on what Gary Becker says. Um, and he was running late. He realized that the, the only way he was going to get to the examination room on, on time was to park illegally. So he's a professor of economics. He's a smart guy. He quickly starts adding up the costs and the benefits. So how many traffic wardens do I see uh, around the streets of New York anyway? Um, what is the likelihood that I will, um, I will be caught uh, if I'm caught? Uh, how bad would it be? Would, would I get a ticket? Would I be towed? How much would the ticket be for? Added, added up all the, um, all the costs, uh, most of which were financial. And then he added up all the benefits of the illegal parking, which largely were the fact that he wouldn't embarrass himself by showing up late to this 
for students' uh, PhD examination. So the point being there that the, some of the benefits there are non-financial. In fact, all of the benefits are non-financial. So he was balancing uh, financial costs against non-financial benefits, risks versus rewards, added it all up, uh, considered that it was the rational thing to do to commit a parking offence, parked illegally, walked into the examination room on time, sat down, and asked the student how he would go about constructing a theory of rational crime, uh, where people, respo- people responded efficiently to the, the uh, benefits of committing crime and the risks of punishment. Um, there's a happy ending to the story, which is that uh, the student passed and Gary Becker didn't get a ticket. There you go, the, the theory of rational crime. Uh, and it, it has something in common with, with some of the theories I discuss in my book. Uh, uh, it's propounded by uh, economists. Uh, it has a sound theoretical basis. Uh, it applies economic thinking to non-economic areas. By economic thinking, we're thinking about this weighing up of costs and benefits, this weighing up of risks and rewards, this thinking about consequences. We're not talking about a commercial decision. We're not talking about a financial decision. Uh, so in some ways, it's, it's, it's entirely typical. I have to tell you, I, I, I interviewed Gary Becker uh, as part of the research for this book, also uh, published the interview in the Financial Times. And I showed up at his door. Um, he has a lovely house uh, near Hyde Park campus in Chicago. And he, he was very gracious. He uh, introduced me to his wife. We discussed economics a little. And then he said, please, come with me. I'll drive you to the restaurant where, where we're going to have a leisurely lunch and we're going to talk economics over lunch. I got in his car. He drove me to the restaurant. To this day, I don't know if he was winding me up, but he then proceeded to park in the 30-minute-only space. (laughs) I looked at him. He looked at me, and he said, we should be fine. I don't think they checked that carefully. I said, was that a rational crime? He said, yes, it was. There you go. There's... An economic theory of crime, a theory of rational crime. Except that won't quite do, will it? That's not quite enough. We're talking about a 75-year-old grandfather with a double professorship of economics and a Nobel Prize trying to weigh up whether or not to commit a parking offence. Let me tell you another story. It doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, for some of the time I was writing this book, I lived in Washington, D.C., and my wife and I were walking along 15th Street on a a sunny uh, June early evening a couple of summers ago. If you know Washington, D.C., you know it gets quite sticky in the summer, so it was stickier still because I had had my 13-month-old daughter in a baby carrier on my back wriggling away, and my wife and I had decided we were going to go for uh, some ice cream. Sweet Licks on the corner of R and 17th. I really recommend it. On the way back, we were talking and we were, uh, we were licking ice cream and just enjoying ourselves. Uh, the sun was just starting to go down, but it was early in the evening. It was maybe um, 7.30. And we heard a scream from across the road. They looked up. And there was a man uh, chasing a woman around a, a car that had suddenly screeched to a halt. And I thought to myself... This has got to be a game, right? This is a joke. They're having fun. Because I have an ice cream in my hand. When I have an ice cream in my hand, I I tend to assume that people are just joking. They weren't just joking. So she 
hit the tarmac in front of the car and he leapt on her and started hitting her as hard as he could. At that point, someone a lot quicker thinking than I am, who was sitting on the steps in front of his house on this warm June evening, leapt up, sprinted across three lanes of traffic which screeched to a halt and barreled into this man and knocked him off her. At that moment, what I can best... I guess what, what happened I can best describe as saying that the entire neighbourhood then rose up to protect her. People were streaming out of their houses, people were stopping their cars, getting out of their cars. It's a busy street. I'm a rational economic agent myself. So when my wife told me to go and help... I trotted across the road, having first taken the baby out of the baby carrier. And when I arrived at the scene, I realized that uh, possibly I hadn't really calculated the costs and benefits terribly well because the three of them were struggling and they were covered in blood. And I realized that there was a knife there. I didn't know where the knife was. I don't think I was terribly effective, but it doesn't matter because so many people poured onto the scene, jumped onto this guy, pinned him down, the police were there in a couple of minutes and incredibly, given the number of stab wounds the girl had received, she survived. If you'd seen her that night you would not have thought she was going to survive. So I sat in the police station in Washington DC, covered in someone else's blood later in the evening and I thought to myself "Um, was that a rational crime? There was no financial motive The guy was guaranteed to get caught. He didn't know her. Somebody hit him with an estate agent's sign, metal estate agent's sign, that picked out of the the ground. It didn't stop him. He uh, he told the police he'd been taking drugs to celebrate his birthday. So, happy birthday. So, this book is, is an attempt to take seriously the ideas of men like Gary Becker, to take seriously the idea that we weigh up risks and rewards, that we weigh up costs and benefits, and at the same time to confront those very powerful, very persuasive theories with the uncomfortable evidence that the world is not always a rational place. The world is a confusing place. It is a complicated place. It is a place where people do crazy things. That's what the book is all about. And for 40 years... We economists have been either accepting or rejecting the ideas, particularly of Gary Becker, but he's not the only one, on faith. So Becker has theory of rational uh, choice of education. For those of you who are studying at LSE, you, you, uh, thought of the, you looked at all the foregone income, how much you would have to pay in fees, uh, how much it would raise your salary uh, after you left LSE. You, you did the uh, net present value discounted cash flow. Of course, if you could do that, it's not clear why you would have to study at LSE. But anyway, <laughs> you did all that. That was back in the, in the 50s. In the 60s, we had um, theories of discrimination, rational responses to discrimination, uh, demand for uh, bigots and demand for people who are not bigots in a competitive market. We had um, the rational theory of crime. We had the rational theory of addiction. What we did not have for any of this time 
was anything, I think, that could really be counted as, as compelling evidence. You either buy these ideas or you do not buy these ideas, but you do so on the basis of faith. You either find them compelling or you find them pretty repugnant. Um, many economists, but not all, find them compelling. Most non-economists find them repugnant. But it, they're just theories. Becker does not particularly focus on accumulating evidence. And that is what has changed in the last 10 years. And what I've tried to reflect in the book, economists have started to get very, very good at finding the evidence, at confronting these theories with reality and asking, does this actually make any sense? Is this what people actually do? Do they do it perfectly? Do they do it approximately? What's really going on? One definition of uh, economics is uh, economics is what economists do. And I think it's actually a less Weasley definition than, I, than it seems because it emphasizes what a terribly pragmatic discipline economics has become. So we'll, we'll take our evidence from anywhere, from standard data, you know, number crunching, absolutely. Very, very clever bits of detective work, sure. But we'll, we'll put people in a, in a brain scanner. We'll see what's going on inside their brains. Um, We'll do clever psychological experiments. We'll do big social experiments. Huge randomized social program. We'll see uh, who comes out the other side, what happens, what they do. Uh, we'll do very sophisticated computer simulations to try to understand how large numbers of people interact together. We, we will take our evidence from anywhere, but we are looking for evidence. And that, I think, is something that has changed fairly recently. Let's think about the evidence on the theory of rational crime. And for me, the most compelling piece of work uh, comes from a, um, a, a shy, retiring character who, who has a very low profile. His name is Steve Levitt. He wrote a book called Freakonomics, which is underappreciated. <laughs> and the, it's a wonderful book, but this research isn't in it. I'm fairly sure this research isn't in it. And that, that's one of the things that interests me. There's a lot of very, very clever research, very important research, much of it by Levitt himself, but by the dozens, scores, hundreds of other clever researchers that has not yet come above the, the radar screen. It's not yet attracted much attention. Maybe not quite freaky enough. So what Levitt did was he asked himself, 15-year-old with a knife, with a gun, thinking about committing a property crime, thinking about committing a violent crime. That's the person that I want to know whether he responds to the threat of punishment. I don't really care very much whether Gary Becker contemplates the threat of punishment when committing a parking offence, but I want to know about that kid with a knife. And it's clearly very difficult to produce evidence on this. Uh, you can look at prison sentences, you can look at offending rates, but you know, cause and effect and tough. Levitt realized he had a great social laboratory in the United States because you've got 50 states. They each have a system for uh, juvenile crime. They have a system for adult crime. In each of those states, the system uh, for juvenile crime is different and it's different from the system for adult crime. Levitt thought to himself, if you look at what happens when a kid has his birthday and on that date he's suddenly subject to a different legal system. You can start asking how their propensity to commit crimes changes. And sure, they're getting older, 
maybe uh, there are hormonal changes getting, you know, going on and so on, but it's not clear why there would be hormonal changes going on um, that would vary state by state according to how the legal systems vary. So he would, he would look at a state where the adult and the juvenile systems had roughly the same punishment. He would look at a state where the adult and juvenile systems had a very different punishment. And what he found was the day you pass your 16th, 17th, 18th, depends, birthday, the day you uh, hit the age of majority, the day you are subject to the adult punishment system is the day you clean up your act. If, and only if, the adult punishment system is significantly more severe than the juvenile punishment system. Gary Becker was right. He wasn't right about that kid on 15th Street, but he was right often enough that we can see it very strongly in the data. We can see it in the evidence. Which, of course, immediately raises the question of how is Gary Becker right? How can he be right? How, how can that 15-year-old kid weigh up the costs and benefits? I buy Gary Becker weighing up costs and benefits, but how can untrained non-economists in all their everyday interactions, kids deciding whether to have safe sex or unprotected sex, that kind of thing, how can, how can they weigh up risks and rewards? How can they weigh up costs and benefits? Well, I can't, have, uh, can't avoid noticing that, say, uh, a member of the England cricket team strikes the ball and it's, it's heading out towards the boundary. The Australian in the field, because inevitably, I, don't, I, need, I need not go on, will catch the ball in flight just for half a second, see the arc of the ball in flight, will turn, will run, will turn again, will catch the ball, because they always do. <laughs> now, we know that um, the arc of the ball is described by a parabola and that you can spend long evenings doing your A-level maths working out the flight of the ball. But you know what? I've, I've never seen Shane Warne or Ricky Ponting out there with a pen and paper. They just seem to be able to catch the ball. Not quite sure how they do it, but they just do it. And of course, they're, they're professionals, but actually we can all, other than the England cricket team, the rest of us <laughs> can all catch a ball. Not quite as well as they do it, but we can all catch the ball. And we don't. We don't do it with a pen and paper. Many of us have no idea, even if we were given the pen and paper, we would have no idea even when to start. I think the overwhelming majority of the population would have no idea how to even begin to start calculating the path of the ball. Before, I don't know whether it would be Newton or Galileo, but anyway, 600 years ago, nobody could calculate the path of the ball. You're telling me people couldn't catch balls 600 years ago. So we can do it. We do it subconsciously. Our brain has the capability to do it. The question then is whether our brain also subconsciously has the ability to weigh up risks and rewards, to weigh up costs and benefits, to think about the consequences of our actions without us consciously being aware of it. So can our brain do that? Well, it would be surprising if it couldn't do it even a little bit because I think that would be a bit of an evolutionary dead end. But the question of whether we almost always get it right or whether we make systematic errors, systematic mistakes, is, I think, a question of evidence. I don't find it implausible, but it's a question of evidence. And 
this book is largely about the evidence. The kind of evidence that particularly interests me is the kind of evidence you see out there in the real world. The kind of evidence you can see in, the, in these patterns. You see people behaving. You see the kids responding to the incentives given to them by the legal system. You, you see the addicts responding to uh, the price of the addictive substance. That's, that's what really interests me because we know that those effects are real. I'm also interested in, and I also discuss, what we learn from the lab, what we learn from the brain scans, what we learn from psychology. Um, but I, I always have a, a question mark about that work. Fascinating as it is, the, the behavioral economics program, those of you who know a little bit about economics will know there are these guys, um, they mostly are guys because economists mostly are guys. There are, there are these researchers out there, they're behavioral economists. They look at how people actually behave. They sit on the boundary between psychology and economics and they do very, very clever laboratory experiments. And they have got a lot of press, a lot of influence, and they spend their careers demonstrating that their students in, that, in the lab are idiots. Um, very, very, very good work. It's very good work. The question I have, which is, I think, the next challenge for behavioral uh, economics, is does it work outside the lab? How much does it work outside the lab? How important are these effects? What happens when there's real money at stake or something else important at stake? What happens when people are familiar with the choices you put in front of them? I can put David Beckham in a lab and I can ask him to solve the, the two-person zero-sum game involved in kicking the football left, kicking the football right, kicking the football straight on. Maybe I'm being unfair to David, but I'm pretty sure he wouldn't, he wouldn't get the answer right. <laughs> Stick him on the football field, he gets it right. Take procurement managers who are used to bidding in auctions. I can make a ton of money out of procurement managers anytime I want. I bring them into the lab, I get them to bid in an auction, they will mess it up. They will bid too much, I will make money. In the real world, they don't bid too much, they get it right. One of my favorite economists in the book is a guy called John List. He's also at Chicago. Uh, John List has a, a nice career of looking at behavioral economics experiments and asking whether they really stack up in more realistic settings. So a very famous behavioral economics experiment is about the, uh, something called the endowment effect. The endowment effect is... Uh, you get an object, it's a nice bottle of wine, um, and you feel you own it. Someone comes along and says, you know, you could sell that wine for £100 on eBay. You think to yourself, but this is my wine, it's special, I want to keep it. Then somebody else points out, you know what, you could get another bottle of wine, same quality, for £100 on eBay. No, I'm absolutely not interested in buying a, in buying a bottle of wine, I just don't want to sell the bottle of wine. So whether you want to buy or sell, your willingness to pay depends on whether you actually feel ownership of the object. And it's a very, potentially a very important piece of irrationality. So whether you own the object, we're not talking about sentimental value here, we're just talking about the ordinary objects, but you own the object shouldn't at all affect how willing you are to pay for it. If it does, then we have, we're in terrible trouble. Supply and demand curves, equilibrium, it is all out of the window. So John List looked at this. He, he, he looked at this effect um, with Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse pins, commemorative pins. He made friends with some Walt Disney executives and they told him about this big pin trading convention where people trade pins. And the evidence for the endowment effect had come from lab experiments where people were asked questions like, please fill in this questionnaire. Thank you for filling in the questionnaire. 
here is a bar of chocolate. It's your bar of chocolate. Thank you very much. We, we're very grateful for your help. Um, by the way, would you like to swap your bar of chocolate for this commemorative mug? And it turns out people want to keep the chocolate. However, if you do the same, exactly the same thing and you say, thank you very much for filling in the questionnaire. Here is a commemorative mug. It's your commemorative mug. We're very grateful for your help. By the way, would you like to swap your commemorative mug for this bar of chocolate? People keep the mug. Okay? The question I have is, do we care about the mug and the chocolate? Are we measuring something important? John List went out and he actually did proper exchanges for stuff that people valued, these collectible items. I don't know why they valued them, but they valued them. And what he found was absolutely exactly the endowment effect for people who were new to pin trading conventions, people who weren't sure what they were doing. He would get the same thing. He would give them the, the Mickey Mouse pin, and then he would ask if they wanted to swap for the Minnie Mouse pin. There's a St. Valentine's Day pin and a St. Patrick's Day pin, these little badges. And he found the endowment effect. He also found the endowment effect completely disappeared when he had anybody who knew what he or she was doing, anyone who had any experience trading pins. Even if, even if they were planning to keep the pin, they weren't planning to trade the pin further, they didn't behave according to the endowment effect. Another example that Liz discovered, um, so there's an important idea out there, which is that if you hire somebody to do a job, and then you hire them, you say, I'm going to pay you £10 an hour. And then just before they do the job, you say, actually, I'm going to pay, them, I'm going to pay you £15 an hour. Then they'll be so grateful that they're getting more than they expected, more than they agreed, that they all work really hard, and actually you will, you will get more than what you bargained for. You might even come out ahead. It's the gift exchange model of employment. You may be surprised to hear that economists find this an extremely subversive idea that anybody would behave like that. Most of us think it makes perfect sense. The evidence for this hypothesis came from laboratory experiments, and the laboratory experiments involved asking people to tick boxes on pieces of paper that asked hypothetically how much would you pay somebody. And hypothetically, if this is what you were paid, how, much would, how hard would you work? Now, the answers on the pieces of paper, they weren't empty answers. They weren't meaningless, because at the end of the experiment, people were paid for their cooperation. People who had said that they would work really hard were paid less. That represents the effort they were putting in. People who had said they would pay other people more, they were paid less because, well, you paid other people more. But still, what we're talking about is people ticking boxes on paper. We are not talking about anybody paying anybody to do anything. John List, John List asked the simple question, well, what happens if we do ask some people to do some jobs? What then happens? So he hired some people to enter data in a library computer. He hired some people to go door-to-door -door collecting money for charity. It was a proper randomized controlled trial. I'm a big fan of randomized controlled trials. If they work for headache remedies, I don't see why they shouldn't work for economics. And what List did was he, with the, the charity workers, he split them half and half at random. Half of them he sent out, paid exactly what they expected. Say it was £10 an hour, I forget. The other half, he said, well, there's been a change of plan. We know we agreed £10 an hour, but actually you'll be paid £15 an hour. Off you go. Same thing with the, the, the data monkeys typing in. Um, it turns out that if you do this, people do indeed 
behave as you would predict in the lab. They, they are grateful for the higher wages. They do work harder. It probably is worthwhile for employers to pay the higher wage. And that this effect lasts, for the data enterers, 90 minutes. <laughs> and for the people who go door to door collecting for charity, all the way until lunch. So, sure, there's an effect. Sure, something's going on. But I wouldn't recommend setting up a small business with a human resources policy based on the lab work, because it doesn't last. This is an extended digression about why this book isn't full of behavioral economics. It's, it's great work, but I still have yet to be convinced. What I want to see is the evidence from real life, and that's, that's what this book focuses on. So it's all about data. It's all about gathering in the data. It's all about gathering in the evidence. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an important example. We talked about crime. Who cares about crime? Let's talk about dating. This is really important. I have a chapter in the book about uh, dating, marriage, and divorce. These are uh, subjects that um, are very important to people, possibly at different stages of their lives. But in order to make the case that people in any way balance up costs and benefits when they're thinking about, say, getting married, or even where to live, what dating market to live in, I need to argue that you know, there's some rationality here, that people are considering competition, people are considering supply and demand. I mean, it seems obvious to me there's a demand, right? The, there's a, an idea out there, a romantic idea, that um, there's a special person out there for each one of us. I don't know if I can share a bit with you, but, you know... I'm thinking this should be really into my cold field and, um, you know, should be about sort of so tall and, you know, maybe, maybe red hair. Um, but for you, it might be different. You know, I'm not judging. Everyone's, everyone's different. So for each of us, there's, this, there's that one special person out there and they like certain films, they like certain music, they look a certain way, they're into particular things. Um, and if we don't find somebody who at least vaguely matches up to that standard, then we're not interested. So that's the romantic view of the world. Um, the cynical view of the world says we take a look at the market and we take what we can get. <laughs> and again, I should, I should emphasize, when I say market, I'm not talking about what goes on around the back of King's Cross. I'm not talking about, <laughs> I'm not talking about financial payments. This isn't about, this isn't about money. But it is about costs and benefits, rational choice, supply and demand, competition. No, competition really matters. And if you don't understand that competition matters in this market, you haven't got out there and lived yet. <laughs> anyway, I said, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting carried away. Um, I said I would talk about, uh, about dating, and I said I would talk about the evidence behind dating. So economists have had a lot of fun gathering evidence uh, about dating. Um, economists like internet dating, for example, um, as a source of data collect thousands, you know, thousands upon thousands of, of pieces of data about what kind of advertisements people click on. Um, they also like speed dating. Uh, when I was filming this TV show, Trust Me, I'm an Economist, I did um, take this guy to a speed date and try to use economic principles to get him hitched, um, <laughs> which went about as well as most economic advice ever goes. Uh, I'll spare you the gory details. We leave it for the questions, possibly. But anyway, after that disaster, I thought no economist would ever go near a speed date again. But not true. Economists love speed dates because you can gather information 
about what people like uh, and who people like and when the liking is mutual. And you can gather this information in a way that you would never have been able to do in the old days without a pair of binoculars and a very, very good lawyer. <laughs> so two of the economists who've looked into this are... Um, uh, um, I totally, the, the guy's name has escaped me. I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, um, Marco. He's so charming. He's so charming. Um, Give me a second. <laughs> so you, can't, you cannot miss referring to the, the economists who have done the research. And I can't believe that I've forgotten Marco. Marco Francesconi, who is Italian and extremely charming and I think would do very, very, very well at speed date. And Michel Bellot. And I've talked about this. I've been, sorry, I've been touring the United States and telling people about this speed date for the last two weeks. I can't believe it's gone out of my mind, but possibly because I've had about eight hours sleep in the last fortnight. So Michel Bellot and Marco Francesconi. And they, um, they gathered evidence on speed dating. Marco, I'm sure it was Marco because he's such a charmer, managed to persuade a very large speed dating company, the UK's largest speed dating company, to share information on speed dates. I should ask at this point, Anybody here been on a speed date? <laughs> I ask a, ask a different question. Does anybody here have a friend who's <laughs> been on a speed date? Hey. Since the concept of speed dating is entirely alien to the London School of Economics, <laughs> you see, it's true. People respond to incentives, okay? Um, since the idea is so alien, let me explain very briefly, um, since you're all playing dumb. The, um, the idea of a speed date is, is you have, let's, just for simplicity, let's talk for, about a heterosexual speed date. So you have, uh, you have 20 men, 20 women, um, go, go into a bar, something like that, organized by a speed dating company, lots of little tables for two. Uh, everyone grabs a stiff drink because you're going to need it. The, the ladies all sit down. The gentleman will sit down uh, for three minutes and will talk, or as I always advise, listen for, <laughs> for three minutes. Then there, a bell will be rung by the speed dating rep and then um, you know, shake hands. If you're brave, kiss on the cheek, probably not. Uh, shake hands, stand up, move to the next table. So the ladies sit, keep sitting down, gentlemen move on. And everyone has a little card which basically says, Date number one, yes, no. Date number two, yes, no. Date number three, yes, no. The great thing about speed dating is you've got in, in just an hour of incredibly stilted conversation, you've got 20 different uh, data points. And the data points, they're real. They're even, even online dating, we're not totally sure whether someone clicks on an online dating ad, is that, are they just curious or do they mean it? Whereas if you tick yes and the other person ticks yes, and you don't mean it, well, you're in trouble because he has your mobile phone number. <laughs> if, you, if you tick no, but you're playing hard to get, to get because really you mean yes, well, tough, because you'll never see each other again because it all stays anonymous. So you have an incentive to tell the truth. So we can believe, I think, pretty much what we learn from speed dates. What do we learn from speed dates? Well, we learn some things that are not, I think, very surprising. So one of the things we learn is that um, men propose a lot more dates than women. 
So women are like, no, 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 no. Men are like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, just goes to show economics and common sense, they're not so far apart. We, we know that, and here we're talking about averages here, everyone's different, but we know that, um, for example, uh, men prefer slim women. Both men and women prefer non-smokers. Uh, women prefer tall men. <laughs> um, I'm six foot three, by the way. Six foot three, okay, fine. Um, on average, uh, people prefer uh, more educated people. So you did weigh up costs and benefits before you came to LSE. You really did. Um, but what we also find, and this, I think, cuts to the heart of the romantics view of the world. We also find that people's standards are extremely flexible. They're not low, they are flexible. <laughs> so, women like tall guys. You turn up at a speed date, everybody's under five foot four. What do you do? If the, if the romantics are right, all these ladies have a view of their perfect gentleman in mind and none of these guys match up and so there will be no dates proposed. Or let's be less extreme, there won't be as many dates proposed because this is not a field that matches up to the usual standards. It turns out that women will propose exactly as many dates as they would have proposed if the men are six foot seven. Uh, and it's not just the women, the men are exactly the same. We adjust our standards very, very quickly to cope with market conditions. Now I, I know... <laughs> I know that um, you might say, well, look, all you're committing to there is possibly going on one date. So, you know, fine, it's, it's fine to relax your standards. The counter-argument, of course, is that um, it's fine to keep your standards high because if you keep your standards high, what have you lost? Just one evening, one evening of speed dating. You don't even have to pay. You get an invitation to another evening of speed dating to enjoy the joy of speed dating all over again. So even when the cost of keeping our standards high is very small, they drop like a stone. Uh, so don't let anybody tell you that economics never gave you any good advice. When you are out dating, bring some short, ugly friends with you. And it works. <laughs> there was a serious point to all of that, um, which is how people behave in marriage markets. Uh, what happens when, as is the case in many cities, including London, uh, when, there is, when there are more young women than there are young men? What happens? What is the effect? Well, it turns out the rational response is for the women to say, well, look, the dating market is, is tough. Therefore, uh, I need to improve myself. I need to improve my educational qualifications. I need to work harder. I need to do better at work. Um, not only because it will help attract somebody, but also because if I don't attract somebody or if the guys are you know, not really worth dating, you know, at least I can rely on uh, myself. So the original title for the chapter, which is now called Is Divorce Underrated?, the, the, the original title of the chapter is Why Your Wife is Smarter Than You, and the answer is Because She Has to Be. Um, the same thing is true, incidentally. The same thing is true. Oh, I'm sorry, is that, um, four women graduating for every three men? It's true, it's really happening. Um, the same thing is true, and this is a more tragic story, for uh, dating markets in the US where uh, many of the young black men who would be on the dating market are in some states in prison in very large numbers. The numbers are actually incredible. In, in um, New Mexico, over 30% of young black men in prison. Unbelievable. 
And because interracial marriage is still extremely rare in the States, what are the young black women who would otherwise be dating these young black men, what are they to do in a very bad situation in the dating market? Well, it turns out, this, by the way, is researched by a guy called Kerwin Kofi Charles. He's again at Chicago. It's a wonderful place. He's, one of the, I think, one of the, the economists who's doing the most interesting work on race in America. Fascinating man. Anyway, what they do is exactly what you would expect if they were rational, which is they stay in school longer, they do night courses, they're more likely to have a job, basically self-reliant because they know the marriage market isn't going to do for them what they wanted. It's not about culture, it's about supply and demand. There's a serious point to all the speed dating stuff. I've talked quite a while. Let me, let me finish by dealing with what I think is the the part of the book where the assumption of rationality is, is most questionable, questionable, most problematic, and that is addiction. So Gary Becker has a theory of addiction, ration, theory of rational addiction, which he wrote with Kevin Murphy. Kevin Murphy is also at Chicago. Kevin Murphy, by the way, he's, I, I describe Becker as Mr. Spock, but, but Kevin Murphy has this, uh, he, he's, he's a, he's a largish fellow and he's very relaxed he wears denim shirts and baseball caps and he's about 50 years old and he's extremely friendly and just just totally relaxed and never, you know, not uptight about anything Um, he he has a mind like a laser, there's a story about Murphy told by one of his colleagues that his colleague called up Murphy and said I'm having real trouble with um, with the mathematics on this problem, I'm trying to work it I'm trying to work it out and, he, and Murphy starts explaining everything about this problem. So he's been working, this economist has been working on this problem, very smart economist, has been working on this problem for weeks. And Murphy, within seconds, is able to start unraveling all the details. And he's saying, you know, I'm just imagining good old Kevin. Uh, I'm explaining my problem to him. He's sitting there at the, the kitchen table with pen and paper, and he's working it through, and he's, he's doing brilliantly. And then he hears this splash and this squeak. And he realizes that Kevin Murphy is giving his, his daughter a bath, and he's got the phone under his and he's just it's just coming off the top of his head so with with guys like that guys like Becker and Murphy it's understandable that you you can put forward a theory of rational addiction and the theory of rational addiction says um, that addictive substances and we could be talking about anything here from uh, alcohol or or tobacco to gambling to heroin addictive substances um, have a benefit okay they make you feel good, they make you look cool, whatever it is. They have a benefit. They also have a cost. It's usually a health cost. It could be a financial cost. Um, in the case of gambling, it's not a health cost, it's a financial cost. And they are at least potentially addictive. Well, not everybody who drinks alcohol is addicted to alcohol, but some people are terribly, <coughs> dramatically, and disastrously addicted to alcohol. And other substances like nicotine, heroin are more addictive. That's not necessarily irrational when you're weighing up the costs and benefits. You just have to uh, consider the fact that you might get in and not be able to get out. Actually, logically, think about the maths. Same thing is true of marriage. I mean, marriage has benefits, right? But if you get into a marriage and then it turns out that it's going wrong and it's ruining your life, it is not very easy to get out. So why would anybody ever get married? Well, the answer is, well, you know, usually it's quite fun. Yeah? Usually it's, wor- usually it's worthwhile. You can't point to someone and say, that person got divorced, therefore marriage is a disaster. So they write down the mathematical assumptions behind the model and they show that it can be um, rational to get addicted and they make various predictions which uh, 
seem to accord with reality. So, for example, it's rash- if you're going to quit, it's rational to quit cold turkey because every time you use the substance, you're helping to get yourself more addicted. So either do it or don't do it. Yeah? Cold turkey works. So that's, that's the rational theory of addiction. And again, it's a theory. One of my favorite characters in the book is a man called Tom Schelling. He's not from Chicago. Um, Tom Schelling has a very interesting biography. He, uh, he advised uh, Americans in the negotiations of the Marshall Plan he, when he was very young. He then advised almost the entire Kennedy administration just before they were elected and, and won office in 1960. He advised Kennedy during the Berlin crisis. He's the intellectual grandfather of the Kennedy administration during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He fell out with Henry Kissinger during the Vietnam War, withdrew his cooperation. He advised Jimmy Carter in 1979 on climate change. Climate change in 1979, who would have thought it? He produced an astonishing paper on racial segregation. And he won the um, Nobel Prize in uh, 2005, in his mid-80s. But along the way, oh, I forgot the most important thing. He was the script consultant for Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Okay? This, is, this is an economist. This is an economist. But along the way, he was in London. Um, he's American, but he was in London uh, on a diplomatic mission in the 50s. And he had quit smoking some years earlier. It's very common to smoke. And a lady came round to this restaurant he was in with a box of cigars. That was quite common, and she offered him a cigar. And he decided, well, I... I'm not addicted, I fancy a cigar. He bought a cigar, smoked the cigar, spent the next 18 years tormented trying to, to quit. I talked to him about this. He said, that was the moment when I learned that Becker and Murphy don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> because it is a challenge, isn't it? You can lay out the equations, you can lay out the, how, rationally how people would behave, then you need to confront the fact that people are going through hell sometimes uh, when they are addicted. So it's, it's, we should just dismiss Becker and Murphy on this subject. Fine, they're right about crime. Okay, maybe they're right about education, but they can't be right about addiction. I mean, here's the, the awkward fact, and again, it emerges from the aggregate data. So one awkward fact is uh, people smoke less when cigarettes are going to get more expensive. Not now, but when cigarettes are predicted to become more expensive in the future. Now, think about what you would do if you were told that regrettably your favorite restaurant was going to have to raise prices in six months' time. What you would do rationally is eat there more often in the next six months, right? Because it's going to get expensive. You love the restaurant. Why not eat there now while you can? That's not what the cigarette smokers do. They try and quit now. And the reason they try and quit is they are A, forward-thinking, B, responsive to price, and C, they know they are addicted. They completely accord with the predictions of Becker's theory. They know they're addicted, and therefore they know they can't keep smoking for another six months and then quit. They have to start trying now, otherwise it's going to get too expensive. That's just one example. The same thing, by the way, is true of gambling. We think the same thing is true of harder drugs. We're not sure. The data are obviously very difficult to get, the data on, on street prices. Most astonishing the evidence on alcohol. When alcohol prices rise, uh, consumption of alcohol falls. I don't think that's very surprising. What is surprising is um, Philip Cook and George Tauschen, the economists who looked at this, looked at medical records. 
And they found that when you look at medical records, you find that liver damage is falling faster than alcohol consumption. It seems to be that it is the people who are using alcohol most heavily, not necessarily alcoholics, but the people who are using alcohol most heavily, they are the ones who are cutting down most dramatically, which is astonishing, but not to Becca. To Becca, that's obvious, right? They're the heaviest users, of course, are the ones who, who, uh, who cut down. Well, one more thing. Uh, when you expose um, people to advertising for uh, nicotine uh, replacement products, chewing gum, patches and so on, they seem to smoke more. I told this to, Becca, to, to, uh, to Kevin Murphy. He said, well, of course they smoke more. Um, that's obvious. Uh, if you tell them that it's easier to quit, then it makes more sense to start and see how it goes. If you believe, if you believe it's going to be easy to quit at the end of it. Perfectly logical. But as an afterthought, he said, but it is always nice to hear that the evidence backs us up. <laughs> how do we resolve this contradiction? How do we resolve this contradiction? What's going on in the data? I think what's going on is that we... No, we suffer from weak will. We suffer from, Tom Schelling wrote about something called egonomics. He said, there's the, there's the half of me, egonomics. There's the half of me that wants to quit. There's the half of me that just can't resist one more cigarette. And he started thinking about it in terms of game theory. This is a, this is a negotiation. This is a bargain. This is a war. And I'm on both sides. That's how he thought about it. And it turns out there's a, lot of, there's a lot of evidence for this sort of split personality model. There's evidence from, uh, from neuroeconomics, evidence from brain scans to how people respond to, uh, to hits of an addictive substance. Um, there's an immediate response, front brain, so a dopamine system response, an unthinking response, and then there's a more rational response. You can kill a rat uh, by just giving it so many hits of cocaine or electro, electrical stimulus that it just never eats. But you can't do the same thing, much more difficult to do the same thing to a human being. We have the same system that rats do, but we also have a more reflective cognitive system. Uh, or a more everyday example, which um, comes partly from Daniel Reed, who I believe is at LSE, um, offering people, like, get them to fill in a questionnaire. You always start these experiments by getting people to fill in a questionnaire. And then having filled in the questionnaire, ask them, thank you very much, really grateful for your help. We'd like to give you a snack as a gesture of our gratitude would you like a chocolate bar or would you like a piece of fruit? See? People are human. They go for the chocolate, right? It's a no-brainer. But if you ask them, we're going to ask you to come back to the lab next week and as a gesture of appreciation, we'll give you a snack then. Next week, would you like a chocolate bar or would you like fruit? Next week, people would like fruit. <laughs> of course, once they show up next week and you go, well, you can have the chocolate bar. Oh, actually, yeah, the chocolate bar. When... <laughs> Last week when I said that I would like the fruit, I must have been out of my mind. <laughs> Same thing is true, by the way, of films. And this is, for, this is Daniel Reed again. Um, if, you, if you offer people a choice of films as gratitude for their participation, uh, you want to see a film tonight? You know, Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, fake breasts, very funny, not too demanding. Um, a film in two weeks? Schindler, this would be good. <laughs> Rashomon, Kurosawa's masterpiece. If I were to watch Rashomon, it would make me a better, more cultured person for the rest of my life. I will have Rashomon. I will watch Rashomon uh, next week. And then you turn up in a couple of weeks' time and the economist goes, or of course you could watch Mrs. Doubtfire, at which point that's exactly what it turns out you wanted to watch. So we, we do have inconsistent behaviour. Schelling's insight is there are things that we can do if we really wanted to watch Rashomon 
there would be things that we could do to make sure that we did, that we didn't change our minds. You just have to make up, who, make up your mind whose side you're on. Um, if you really wanted to not eat the chocolate, there are things you could do. Don't put it in the fridge. You know, don't buy the chocolate. Keep yourself away from temptation. More recently, economists have started making the connection between uh, those ideas and development. So a guy called Dean Carlin uh, is looking at rural banking in the Philippines and asking why uh, so many poor people find it hard to save. And it, partly it's because they're poor, but partly they find it hard to save for exactly the same reason that many of us find it hard to save, which is, you know, well, <clears throat> there's a party at Uncle Jerry's and, you know, oh, I saw this thing, it looked really cool, I couldn't help myself. It's painful to save. It's much more fun to spend. So again, the same thing, the same thing as with the fruit and chocolate, the same thing as with uh, Rashomon and American Pie. We, or or um, American Pie is another example. We, we tell ourselves we want to save and then we spend. So what Dean Carlin did was he said, okay, team up with a rural development bank. I'm going to offer you a commitment savings account. And the commitment savings account works like this. You give the bank your money and the bank does not give it back. How about that for commitment? To be more precise, the bank will give it back when you have saved $50 or $100 or whatever it is you pre-agreed was your target. Uh, those are the circumstances under which you will get your savings back and no other circumstances unless you presented a medical certificate showing you needed the money to pay a doctor's bill. So this is not a very attractive savings product for some of us, but for those of us who are weak-willed and who have trouble saving and who want to save, it's a very attractive product. Well, what Dean Carlin found was it was exactly the people, exactly the people who his surveys had said, this person has a problem with their willpower, this person is impatient, this person... These people have a problem, a, con a self-control problem. It was exactly those people who went for the commitment savings account and not the others. Which, by the way, the commitment savings account works extremely well. I'm very, very good at getting people to save. So, yes, we are not perfectly rational. You know? Mr. Spock, Homer Simpson, we're a mix. But I reckon we're closer to Mr. Spock. And even when we are most irrational, where we're in the grip of an addiction, where we're in the grip of our own weak will, we can often find a way of, of rediscovering rationality. Uh, let me finish by telling you um, how I got this fantastic um, washboard stomach. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Dean Carlin has $1,000 of mine. And if I don't do 200 sit-ups and 200 press-ups a week, Dean Carlin is going to send the money to charity. Uh, he has, a, he has a, com a company set up called stick.com. Um, those of you who are here for Ian Ayres, Ian Ayres is also on, on, the, on board the company. So I realized that I couldn't do my 200 push-ups and 200 sit-ups. It's not that many, but it's 200 more than I was doing before. And I, signed, I sent them my money. They check up on me. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy. So here we are. We are not quite rational. We need to be humble about pushing forward these theories of rational addiction, rational crime. But there's really a lot to them. And if human rationality, one way or another, can get me to exercise, it's a pretty powerful force. Thank you very much for listening.
totally wonderful. Um, totally wonderful. And if you, by the way, in the book, there's also how to win at poker. So uh, um, we've got a few minutes for questions. Um, I should tell you that uh, ask you to wait for a mic to get to you before you ask one. Uh, ask a question. Um, this whole event is being recorded, um, not because of some Stalinist policy of uh, the LSE, but because it goes out on a podcast. So if you could wait, and if you could just also say uh, who you are and what your affiliation LSE or whatever it is. So, some questions, please. Can we go down here? Yes. Hi, uh, Arthur Mark from City of I hope that wasn't me. Uh, Arthur Mar from City of London School. Uh, in the book, you mentioned that perceived costs were more important than the actual costs, since that's where we make our decisions. In which case, um, how important is advertising, since that's where we get most of our information bombarded at us nowadays? Um, thanks, Arthur. You cheated. You read the book. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for buying it. Um, I switched this to open mic office. Can people hear me here? Yeah? Um, so, yes, of course you can. Good. So it, it's a good question. There's, there's an example in the book which I think is the, the piece of research in the book that I am least confident of. And I'm trying to present the latest stuff. It's clear that some of it will later be disproved or disagreed with. Um, the, thing, the, the thing I think is shakiest but I just had to tell everybody about because it's so remarkable is the research on uh, how people's sexuality seems to change uh, when they ha find they have a relative with HIV or AIDS. And this research, it's recent research, but it goes back to data from the early 1990s when um, HIV AIDS was even more dangerous than it, than it is today. And um, the economist, uh, Andy Francis, who looked at this, discovered that uh, when, so he didn't look at how people's sexual behavior changed if they had friends with HIV because there's a, there's a, the, People who are gay are more likely to have AIDS in America in the early 1990s. They're also more likely to have gay friends. It doesn't, it, you know, it's, it's too confusing, cause and effect. But looking at a relative who has AIDS, and what he found was that people who had a relative who had AIDS um, were uh, more, if they were men, they were more likely to be having sex with women. If they were women, they were more likely to be having sex with women. Um, they were no more likely, they were no more likely to be uh, straight or gay uh, before they discovered a relative with AIDS, but then they were more likely to change to the safer option of having sex with women after they discovered that. I don't know whether to believe this. It strikes me as remarkable. But if it's true, that's an example of what you're talking about. Because their real risk of contracting HIV AIDS did not change at all. So either they were wrong about their estimates of the risk before or they were wrong about their estimates of the risk after. They, they either underestimated the risk before or they exaggerated the risks afterwards. Um, but it does emphasize the fact that the, what's on your mind, the, the, the salience of risks, counts. Um, so I don't, I don't deny that. That suggests also that presumably advertising works a little bit, otherwise we, uh, we wouldn't see any advertising. But the important thing to remember is that when, when there's a strong benefit to people knowing information, they will tend to gather that information. So I argue in the book, people don't bother to gather information about elections because there's no strong benefit to them of knowing who to vote for. You vote because you want to feel involved, it's kind of interesting. You don't, you don't vote because you think you're going to change the result. And that's why people participate in elections as you know, rather lazy consumers. You know, we, we, we decide on personality and so on. We don't bore ourselves with looking at um, 
you know, speeches of candidates. No, instead, you, if you were going to the polls, um, and uh, after you went to the polls, you were going to buy a flat screen TV, my question is, would you gather information on the candidates, or would you gather information on flat screen TVs? And my argument is you gather information on flat screen TVs because that's what matters. So even the, the information we have matters, but even our incentives to gather information depend on how useful that information is to us. Hmm. Other questions? Can we go up there? Yes. Yeah, I'm here. At, uh, my name is Bernhard von Stengel. I'm a researcher in game theory here at the LSE. And one of the questions, I mean, is you talk about people are rational, but they also think that other people are rational. I mean, do we think whether other people think or do we treat them as part of our environment that is not as more, did, I mean, less individual? Did you, did you catch that? Okay, good. That's fine. Yeah. So, uh, I, um, before I was corrupted and led astray into the world of journalism and writing books, <laughs> I was a game theorist too. And I, I love game theory. I find it very seductive. But the problem with game theory, as you well know, is that game theory is, is about the, a rational interaction with other rational decision makers. So you use game theory to model a, a game of poker. You might use game theory to model a war or a bargaining situation or a strike, um, maybe a wage negotiation, um, all, all kinds of things. But um, formal game theory, sort of traditional game theory, would say, okay, I am perfectly rational and... Uh, you're perfectly rational, and then I, so I know what you think, I think, you think, I think, you think, I think. Um, game theory was developed by John von Neumann, who, um, he was called, he was called by Time magazine um, the, the best brain in the world. Uh, John von Neumann shared a Princeton campus with, with Einstein, so it sort of gives you a sense of the reputation of the guy. He, um, he made very big strides towards inventing the computer, and then he, uh, the computer he'd designed, he would then race the computer to prove that he was faster than the computer. So he also made very big strides in developing the nuclear bomb, and he was, a, he was a nuclear hawk. But along all this, he developed game theory, which is the study of strategic interaction. The problem is, von Neumann was a genius, uh, and the rest of us aren't. And normally, in the book, I argue that mostly rational is good enough when we're talking about a theory of crime, we're talking about a theory of addiction, mostly rational is good enough. When we're talking about game theory, we have to be very careful because if I'm mostly rational and you're mostly rational and my mostly rational reaction to your mostly rational decision, we very, very quickly get into problems. So I'm, um, I'm not a great fan of von Neumann in the book. I'm a much bigger fan of Tom Schelling who used game theory in a much more everyday practical sense. He said, look, rather than over-mathematically modeling this, let's try and stick to basics. Let's try and understand the basic incentives, the basic strategic moves in play. Um, it's not a coincidence that when I introduced um, Shelling in the book, um, a bunch of top security chiefs in Camp David, and they are, they are going through a, a simulated invasion of Berlin and trying to work out what they would do. And the guy simulating the invasion is Tom Shelling. He's at the other end of the phone from Harvard, and he's, and he's basically calling in, yeah, now the Soviets have broken through the Berlin Wall, now they're, now they're starting um, an aerial blockade, because he wanted people to think about the, the, the subtleties of the situation, the human side of the situation, their emotional responses. He tried always to keep it simple, and um, much as I love the tangles of game theory, I think it works much be better when it's kept simple. Hmm. Um, blue, can we have the uh, green at the back there, please, first, and then we'll come to you, and then we'll... 
Hello, uh, Ross Parker. I'm a management consultant. I wondered, uh, Tim, have you ever run the numbers and worked out whether people that attend your public lectures are more or less likely to buy your book? <laughs> so, um, my understanding of this, it's a very good question. Um, my understanding of this is that, is that the optimal strategy is to convince um, LSE that I am going to show up. So to convince all of you to come. And, and then to phone in with some extremely plausible sounding excuse. And I was run over uh, on the way over here and I've been taken to hospital that will, that will encourage people to feel lots of sympathy for me. Um, so everybody will be here. They'll be excited about the book. They would have seen all the advertising for the book. Um, and so they'll still be inclined to buy the book, but it doesn't actually require any effort on my part. Um, uh, so two explanations for why I'm actually here. Um, uh, one is that this is a game you cannot play too often. Uh, uh, the other is that I actually really love talking about this book. <laughs> because I, just, I love the characters and I love the stories in it. And um, in about five speeches' time, I might start saying no to my publishers when they ask me to do these things. But for now, I'm still enjoying the ride. Can we come down here, please? Thanks. Hi, my name is Subin, and I'm a second-year economics student in LSE. My, I've got two questions for you. My first question is regarding your earlier book, The Undercover Economics. And you talked about poker, and you talked about game theory. And you mentioned that the best possible way to bluff is when you have the worst possible hand. But you did not really go into much detail, and I was wondering if you could go into more detail about that as to why. Can, can I just leave you with one so that we can get round the room? Because I think we really need to hear the answer to that. If you've got time at the end, you, we'll deal with the other one. Okay? All right, my, my, my second one is very brief. I thought you were going to All right, make it very, very brief, please. My second question is, um, could you give a rational, uh, rational explanation as to why we should buy your book as opposed to borrowing it from someone else or reading it in a bookstore? Very good question. Thank, Thank you. Uh, I'll use my privilege and just answer the first question. Hopefully the answer to the second is self-evident. Um, <laughs> so um, if you follow, stick with me and you win enough money to, to afford the book uh, after poker. So this, this, this insight comes from um, von Neumann's original model of poker, um, which I talk about a bit more in this book that I mentioned in the last book, but in this book I, I really get to grips with it. Um, uh, von Neumann in the late 1920s realized that uh, if he wanted a, a logical mathematical theory of life, then he could start with a logical mathematical theory of poker because it had so many secrets and bluffs and it was, seemed to be so psychological. And so he wrote down a very simple model of poker, very simple, with just two players and none of the sort of, you, you just had a good hand or a bad hand on a, on a continuum. You didn't have all these different complexities. You didn't draw to improve your hand. Um, what he found was, basically, uh, you, um, in that simple model of poker, if you had a very good hand, you, you bet. If you had a mediocre hand, the way the game was structured, this is the simple model of poker, the way the game was structured, you could immediately go to a showdown without betting. So it would be a, be a very low-stakes showdown just involving uh, the ante. Um, so if you had a mediocre hand, that was the right thing to do. But if you had a very poor hand, you wouldn't even win under those circumstances. So if you had a very bad hand, you should then bet again and try to convince the person that you had a very good hand. You might, A, convince them to drop out, but more importantly, you would also convince them to stay in some of the time when you have a good hand. 
See, if you are bluffing with a bad hand and people realize that you bluff with bad hands, then they will be all the more tempted to stay in and get caught by your good hands. Um, that was a very, very simple model of poker. It turns out it's broadly true, even in very complex models of poker. The guy I describe in the book is a man called Jesus. Um, he's Chris Jesus Ferguson because he has the long hair and the beard. That's why they call him Jesus. He has rough round shades and a cowboy hat. And he, if you look him up on the internet, you'll see him in two incarnations. He has a, a modern take on von Neumann's classic 1928 model of poker. Um, he's also a world champion in 2000, one of the most successful players of all time. Um, but just briefly, the, the interesting thing I learned, I went to Vegas, I talked to all these poker players. The thing I learned is that while Ferguson has a perfect memory, a bank of computers, uh, and a, a, a raft of mathematical papers, all trying to work out how to play poker perfectly, he's not really very much better than players who've just been playing the game for 40 years and have just learned how to do it intuitively. I think the message from that is that we, we take into other fields is that you should not underestimate the intuitive power of the human mind. We can do a couple more. Um, can we do one down at the back, back, at the back here? Can you get to them? Sorry. Is, and then we'll come. Um, hi, I'm David Cragen. Um, I'd like to ask, um, you talked about people giving up cigarettes when they think the price is going to be more expensive in six months. Do you think the same thing would be true of our smoking ban in the UK? Um, as you know, would you expect people to give up when the smoking ban is announced? Um, I think so, but one of the points I try and make in the book is that the world is, is a rather complicated place, and I would hate for people to... There's no politics in the book, apart from I explain how lobby groups work. Um, there's no policy in the book. I don't sort of say, we must do this, we must do that. I'm not very interested in politics. I'm interested in understanding how the world works. And I'm nervous that people get hold of, um, of these economic ideas and then charge away and say, and therefore when we do this, this will happen. The world is so much more complex than that, which is why I argue for uh, randomized trials, for example, for, for policies wherever, wherever possible. So yes, I would expect so. It seems to me that the smoking ban probably makes smoking less attractive. Could be wrong, but it seems to make smoking less attractive. If it makes smoking less attractive, um, it should reduce smoking. But there are so many other things going on that it's hard to say. So you, you're getting people to smoke more in their own homes. Um, you're also introducing people to a network of other smokers outside and, and giving them a certain joie de vivre. So, um, so I, we need to be very humble when we are proposing straightforward policy conclusions from these theories. Yeah, you're also boosting the sales of patio heaters. But uh, um, a question in the, mid, in the middle there, please, Red. Hi there, Tim. My name is Mitesh Patel, and I'm also a management consultant. Tim, in your, in your speech, you talked a lot about gathering evidence, um, and you also referenced Steve Levitt. And I was actually sitting here thinking, come on, who, who's cleverer, Tim or Steve? Um, That's easy, I'll, Steve. <laughs> and I was wondering how you would uh, evidence, evidence your answer, but um, you've been very humble in it and answered very quickly. Let's, let's, not, let's not get confused. Um, this book is not a book of original research. This is a book about original research. Um, I, I really enjoy Levitt's work. The only shame is that people haven't realized that there are so many other Steve Levitts out there. And what I wanted to do was, was to, to look at the people who were developing theories of politics, to look at the people who understand how office politics works and why your boss is overpaid, to look at the people who are looking at speed dating, to look at the people who are looking at marriage markets. Lena Edland, one of her papers is called 
hermaphroditism, what's not to like. Um, <laughs> how, can you, how can you focus only on Steve Levitt? So I'm a big fan of Levitt, but, but there are other researchers out there, and, and this book is about them rather than about me. We'll do a couple more. Anybody, people in the room who really would feel shortchanged if they don't get their question in? Could they sort of put their hands up We now? can hold an auction. One there, one there, <laughs> one there. Any more? Okay. We'll do the, can we do the one up there first? And then the hand, hand went up over there. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name is Karen. I'm an economics graduate student here. Um, so... Most of your talk was about the empirical work that's going on providing evidence for what was theory, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, all the way back to von Neumann, for example. Um, and, and it's all very exciting, but theory is going on, and so I'm, I'm curious as to what you think are the, the more interesting areas of theory for pursuit today that perhaps we'll be able to do empirical work on in the future. Uh, I'm still a... I'm still in it. Did everyone hear, hear the question, yeah? So I'm, I'm still a, a complete glutton for, for game theory. I love game theory. Um, so even though I, I still haven't quite worked out exactly what Susan Athey did to get the John Bates Clark Medal, um, very sort of deep insights into, into the structure of game theory, I'm, I'm in approval. Um, the other thing that I think is going on, which is a mix of theory and ev evidence, is, is these attempts to, to produce ideas about um, the te tectonic economics, is what, what one commentator called it, about the really, really big questions about economic institutions, for example. Um, and there, the questions of economic development and so on. There we have a lot of important empirical work, but we have a lot of important theory as well. And the fact that economic development has been increasingly brought into the mainstream of economics I think is a very important step but I'm I'm just a journalist so you, you would know better than I who else really wants to gentlemen there in, in, the, in, 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 the, uh, in the middle there and we'll come to you sir hi my name is Julian Anjazic um, it seems to me from what I've heard that in your book you come to no definite conclusions so wouldn't it perhaps be better or more accurate for your book to be called The Logic of Life, Probably? <laughs> George Bernard Shaw, you know, if all the economists were laid end to end, they'd never reach a conclusion. <laughs> um, maybe maybe I, I argued for humility, but let me say, as I think I did in the speech, on the, the spectrum between Homer Simpson and Mr. Spock, I think we're a lot closer to Mr. Spock. Uh, I, the book is overwhelmingly about instances where the rational choice model of behavior does work and is powerful. Um, but I just feel that in a, in a setting like this where people have so many questions about whether it really works, you don't want to hear me give 10 examples of when it works. You also want me to discuss the hard cases. Um, but you know, whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, I think rational choice theory works very well. Thanks okay. for the question. Question just there, please. Hi, Mary Robertson. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about the con concept of rationality that's underpinning your book. Um, I guess my question... that work? Can you convince me that the concept of rationality underpinning your book isn't tautological? 
And if you can't, then what does this imply about your claim to base so much on evidence? Hmm. Tautology is easy, right? Because, you know, that's the easy way to argue. Um, the, the standard economic definition of rationality is not quite tautological but close to tautological because it's purely a mathematical definition of consistency. And then you get to, as, as Deirdre McCloskey said, you get explanations along the lines of, so um, why, did the, why did the man drink the motor oil? Well, because he had a taste for motor oil. Um, I, don't, I don't accept, that is how you would see rationality defined in economics textbook. Uh, I, I don't accept that definition. I don't, well, it's fine, but I think we need to say more. So I have a more pragmatic approach, which is I, I will accept right now is somewhat subjective. What I want is for people's motivations to be fairly simple and coherent. So if you tell me that um, the reason that prostitutes in Mexico do not use condoms is because they would really like to contract a sexually transmitted disease, then I'm thinking that doesn't make any sense to me. It's not irrational in that one can pose tastes where that, they would do that, but it, you, you've not said anything interesting. But if you can say, look, um, here is the price premium they receive for not using condoms. Here is, as far as we can work out using the epidemiological statistics, here is the risk to, that they are running, the, the health risk, the risk of, of premature death, the risk of disease. Um, and then when we, run, when we compare the premium they receive for not using a condom with the health risk that they're taking... Uh, we find that it matches up fairly well with other estimates that have come from surveys, that have come from people doing dangerous jobs all across the developed world. Um, and it's about one year of healthy life is valued at about three to five years of income. Well, I don't think I've proved that the prostitutes are rational and well-informed, but I, think, I don't think I'm making an empty statement, put it that way. I'm going to do one final question. Who, who wants to ask it? And then we'll, any others will have to be personally to... Tim, as he signs the book you've just bought. Um, who, final question? Final question? Who wants to ask it? Gen, yes, go ahead. Gentleman there, please. Uh, David Harbin from London Metropolitan University. Um, I was curious about your comments about marriage, uh, which you sort of basically said that uh, people get married because they like it, but you also uh, said that divorce is uh, underrated for reasons that I didn't quite get. And I was just wondering... It strikes me that marriage really is a commitment device. It basically does exactly what it says on the, on the tin. You know, people get married because they want to make this uh, commitment. Uh, and it's a kind of curious commitment also because if people really believed that they could happily live the rest of their lives together, they actually wouldn't need to make the, you know, that, that actual uh, symbolic commitment. Uh, so with divorce... If you make divorce easier, then surely marriage is weakened, and then what's the point of it in the first place? So I was rather curious, you know, what is the real benefit of divorce? Uh, let me guess, you, are, you teach economics, am I right? Uh, psychology of decision-making. Psychology of decision-making. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds... I hereby name you an honorary economist. Um, so just on the... On the the reason you didn't catch why divorce is underrated is because I didn't say so in the talk, but I'll, I'll say so now at the risk of losing. People go, oh, I was going to buy the book when he's going to reveal the answer as to why it's underrated. Fine, I'll do that. Um, the basic idea as to why it's rational to get married, um, even though you think you're going to happily spend your life together, is because it's not just a commitment device for you, it's a commitment device for the other person. You want to tie the other person in. Um, uh, what rationally... Um, 
I, I understand there's something about you know white wed wedding symbolism, friends gathering round, that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, the um, I'm so glad my wife isn't here this evening. Um, <laughs> what what rationally would you expect if if the legal foundation of marriage was weakened, so divorce became easier? Well, you would expect the if people are rational, you would expect um, them to rely less on marriage as a commitment device, to regard the marriage as less secure, and to make various decisions reflecting the fact that they thought the marriage was less secure. Um, you would also expect people to be able to threaten to leave the marriage and use that as a lever to get better behavior. So that's what you would expect in theory. Well, the great thing is about this book, you don't need just to think about the theory, you can look at what actually happened. So Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers who, by the way, are uh, romantic partners and have been unmarried for 10 years, may tell you where they're coming from, um, have studied this and uh, looked at what happens as no-fault divorce laws were introduced across the U.S. You've got, again, 50 U.S. states, and one by one, you're introducing no-fault divorce laws. You can see the effect it has on people. So people delay having kids when the law, change, when the law changes. Makes sense. You're less secure in the marriage. You want to be sure. People are less likely to fund each other through college. Again, it makes sense. You don't want to you know, work nights and then this person qualifies as a lawyer and then gets himself a new girlfriend and leaves. Um, but that's more easy if no-fault divorce is introduced. So people are responding rationally. That doesn't sound like divorce is underrated. Well, let's bear in mind the flip side. When no-fault divorce was introduced, women in an unhappy marriage were better able to leave, uh, better able to threaten to leave as well. Um, they, partly that was there was more money around, so they were economically able to leave, but also legally it was easier. And when no-fault divorce was introduced, you saw a fall in female depression, female suicide, husbands murdering their wives, and domestic violence. And that is why I think divorce is underrated. <laughs> um, I just want everybody, please, to thank Hamish, who's been very kind and very professional in... Um, uh, chairing this meeting and recommend that you all read his columns in the Independent and in the Sunday Independent. Thank you very much. Wasn't expecting. Tim, thank you. Tim, thank you so much. Tim, thank you so much. And the, uh, um, there are thousands of copies somewhere other for you to sign and um, ask those questions you didn't do. Thank you very much. We thank Tim again. Thank you. Thank you.